A reading from Genesis. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here with the Spirit is saying to God's people. The story is told of a a pastor who was visiting a parishioner one Saturday on a summer afternoon. The visit had been planned for weeks. However, when the pastor arrived and began to knock on the door, no one answered. Since the woman's car was in the driveway, he persisted before he finally got annoyed and went home. Several days later, the pastor was still put off, so he went by the woman's house and dropped a note in her mailbox. It simply read, I came as planned. And then his note listed a scripture verse, Jeremiah 7.13. So when the woman received the note, she, of course, had to had to fetch her Bible. And the verse states, while you were doing all those things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. What kind of pastor would do that? (laughs) Feeling very self-satisfied, the pastor assumed he'd gotten the last word. But on the next Saturday morning, he received a note from that same parishioner. It simply read, my apologies. And then her note listed a scripture verse, Genesis 3.10. So the pastor grabbed his Bible and read, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So it's supposed to be funny. 
But it carries a message. Most of us want to be seen, and then at the same time, we don't want to be seen. One part of us wants to have people in our lives who know us and by some grace still love us. But we choose over and over again to show and to reveal only what we want to show and reveal. What we want other people to see. And not many of us really want to be caught undressed. Because that kind of vulnerability is just too scary. And so it seems, I think, for most of us, most of the time to to live by our adapted selves, as the psychologists would tell us. Because to live by our adapted selves is to know what's familiar. I think about myself. This, This sermon kicked up a lot for me. You know, I think, you know, I'm pretty revealing. I might tell you about my issues with substances. I might tell you about my bouts with depression. I might tell you about my struggles to have a more intimate relationship with God. But I've been a hider all my life. All my life. I have not really wanted people to know how much ambivalence I feel about myself. Or how much ambivalence I feel about the commitments in my life. My fears run deep. And do I have reasons for that? Sure I do. We all have reasons. Like we can trace those reasons back, you know, we trace them back to our childhoods. We have a sense of when we got hurt, where we felt shame, when we started to adapt our identity and our behavior according to our fears. And so we come to places like this to ask questions. How would we free ourselves from the burdens of our past? How would we truly move towards a more liberated sense of ourselves? A new identity marked by greater confidence and faith. Good news is, by God's grace, it's never, ever, ever too late. Never. Today's text is is loaded. Amazing story. It's just chocked full of psycho-spiritual insight and relevance. Just a quick, quick summary. God, God in the story has created Adam and Eve, first humans. God has made human beings intrinsically good. They've been given... The gift of breath. 
They've been given an abundant world to live in. Plenty of sustenance, plenty to enjoy, a sense of purpose, which is to care for God's creation. And God's also taken a big risk. He gives us the gift of free will, choices to make. And in the narrative, God offers some advice in the face of all these choices we get to make. Please be reminded, God says, that you cannot have everything. Please be reminded that there are always limits. Please be reminded that you cannot indulge your primitive brain, the pleasure-seeking center, the place where more, more always seems like the best choice. But I got to tell you, I, I can't wait to talk to God about this one. What was he thinking? Don't, don't eat that one beautiful apple. What parent would ever say such a stupid thing? Don't eat that one apple. It's like telling your child you, you can eat anything in the kitchen except those warm, freshly baked cookies that are on the counter. And human beings are funny that way. You tell human beings that they can't do something and it's instantly more enticing. It's more appealing. It's a bigger temptation. It's like telling my friend Michael Crouch at a coffee hour, you can eat all the strawberries and carrots, but don't eat Eric's sticky buns. And then you look over there and Michael has gone over to eat his third or fourth sticky bun. <laughs> I'm usually right beside Michael. <laughs> so what exactly did God think would happen in that story? But the lesson, the lesson stands You remember the seminal research that was done in 1970 with children and marshmallows? You guys remember that? You put one marshmallow on the table, then you tell the kids if they don't eat the marshmallow in 15 minutes, they'll get two marshmallows. Well, most of the children or a lot of the children can't contain themselves, which is to say they cannot contain or they cannot hold delayed gratification. But there's one of the lessons. There's one of the lessons. The ability for all of us to practice delayed gratification has long-lasting implications. The social scientists would tell us The children who waited longer when reevaluated as teenagers and adults demonstrated a striking array of advantages over everybody else. Yeah. 
They had higher test scores, higher social competence, self-assuredness, self-worth, rated by adults in their lives as more mature, better able to cope with stress, more likely to plan ahead, more likely to use reason, less likely to have conduct disorders. The lesson stands. It's a thing we need to teach ourselves and it's a thing we need to teach our children. God wants for all of us to have a good life. And of course, choices matter. Well, if I'd been in that uh, experiment, I would have eaten the marshmallow. As I said to you, I'm always standing beside Michael. I don't, I don't consistently make the best choices. And then a funny thing happens when I don't. Maybe it's guilt or maybe some cousin of guilt. But in a flash, I get sneaky. Right? You don't want people to see I don't want people to know my hands in the cookie jar. How many sticky bonds have you had, Carter? Uh, That's my first one. Really? It's a funny thing. We don't like the word sin, but sin is a great thing. Take that one away. Because it exposes us. It's not a final declaration that we're bad. It's just this way of owning things, right? Acknowledging that we don't make good choices for ourselves. It's an acknowledgement that we have all these ways, obvious and subtle, of creating veils of denial and secrecy that would threaten to damage our relationships. And then God steps in in this story and says, where are you? What a great question. Where are you? I think how we understand that question is really, really important. Maybe God just wants to draw closer, wants you to draw closer to yourself. Maybe God just wants to be in relationship with you that's more honest. And the question sits there and says, where are you in your life? Where are you in your friendships? Where are you in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting? Where are you in your work? Where are you in those things that have left you brokenhearted? Where are you in those things you regret and wish you hadn't said or done? Where are you in your disappointments? Where are you in your joys? But really, really an important question to ponder 
And it's a deep, deep invitation for all of us, I think, to be more self-reflective. To observe what's really going on. And to not turn it into a judgment. Right? We have this way of turning self-reflection into judgment. It's just information. But important information. So that we can say, this is where I am. This is where I'd like to be. This is where I am not. This is where I never want to go again. So where are you is a great, great question. And says, how today do you want to exercise your free will? As people of faith, this kind of self-reflection is a really powerful portal. As people of faith, we come here and we are counted and we make the choice not to live unexamined lives. We choose not to make excuses for the choices we have made because at the end of the day, no one has ever made us do what we did. At the end of the day, no one has ever made us unhappy. To think otherwise is to be in denial. To think otherwise is to take a big step away from truth and vulnerability, which is essential to stronger relationships. God asks Adam and Eve, did you eat from the one tree I told you not to? And they can't even answer the question. It's a yes or no question. Did you eat it or did you not eat it? She made me do it. The snake made me do it. My mother made me do it. My ex-husband made me do it. And there's another lesson. Really important lesson. If I can blame someone else, I'm really quite stuck. I'm just stuck. I'm just stuck in my anger. I'm stuck in my defensiveness. Instead of in my fear, our sadness, our remorse, which is what I was trying to talk to the kids about in the children's sermon gone sideways. (laughs) But notice where you're angry and defensive because it is never a path forward. It's just a way to hide. It's just a way to hide from yourself. It's 
just a way to hide from God. It's just a way to hide from the people closest to you. It's a way to move yourself away from the fullness that God promises. So here's my truth. I don't want to be a man who spends too much time on descriptions, excuses, or explanations about my poor choices or why I show up the way I do. I don't want to hide behind such things. Even more, I don't want to be sneaky because I'm actually just really, really afraid. Sneaky always means there's more to clean up later. I want to be a man. I want to be a man of faith that communicates my fear, my confusion, my guilt in real time. And then you know what I want to do? I want to quickly pivot to talk about what God is doing in my life. How God is making me into a new creation. So more honesty, more vulnerability, more openness. I want to let more people in. I was at an AA meeting this week and one guy said, if you don't have a committee of three or four people who know everything about you, you're in trouble. Robert Fulgham wrote an essay on the game of hide and seek and how we all do it. And he tells this story. A man I know found out last year he had terminal cancer. He was a doctor. He knew all about dying. And he didn't want to make his family and friends suffer through that with him. So he kept his secret and he died. And a few people said how brave he was to suffer in silence and not tell anyone. But privately, his family and closest friends would say how disappointed they were that he didn't need them. That he didn't trust their strength. And it hurt that he didn't say goodbye properly. And Fulgham concludes, he hid too well. Getting found would have kept him in the game. You know, hide and seek, grown up style. Then Fulgham says, better than hide and seek, I like the game called sardines. In sardines, the person who is it goes and hides, and everybody goes looking for them. And when you find them, you get in with them, and you hide there with them, and pretty soon everybody's hiding together, all stacked in a small space like puppies in a pile. And then somebody giggles. And then somebody laughs. And then everybody gets found. 
That's the kind of church we want to be. Vulnerable enough so that everybody gets found.